whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is our confession, Lord, under your supreme strength and glory. We ask for your help now in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message is Soli Deo Gloria, To God Alone Glory. It's part of a five-part series, as you know, on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is the Latin for only or alone, and the five solas are Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solo Christo, on the basis of Christ alone. Sola fide, through the means of faith alone. Soli Deo gloria, to the ultimate glory of God alone. Sola scriptura, as taught with final and decisive authority in Scripture alone. Now, the first reformers, the, the main magisterial reformers, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, never summed up their teachings in this tidy five prepositional phrase way. It developed over time as a way of capturing the essence of the Reformation in its dispute with the Roman Catholic Church. And I think, I lovingly think, they preciously clarify the crux of the Reformation and the heart of the gospel. At least they can. And the reason I say they can is because you know, as well as I, that five prepositional phrases hanging in the air with nothing to modify, no clause expressed, illuminate nothing. <laughs> this is what we are learning, how to read. <laughs> so what's the clause? that these five prepositional phrases are bringing such wonderful, precious clarity to? And the answer is, we are justified before God. Or, justification is. That's the clause. Then follow five magnificent phrases that define and protect the gospel from unbiblical dilution. 
Justification before God is, or we are justified before God by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone, through the means or instrument of faith alone, for the ultimate glory of God alone, as taught finally and decisively in the scriptures alone. These are five phrases clarifying how God justifies the ungodly. How sinners get a right standing before God so that he's 100% on our side instead of wrath. If you try to put other clauses in there, even good ones, you have to change the meaning of the prepositional phrases in order to stay biblical. For example, in justification, faith receives a finished work of Christ performed outside of me on my behalf, counted as mine through faith, imputed to me by faith. If you said, we are sanctified by. In sanctification, faith receives an ongoing power of Christ at work inside of me, producing practical holiness. If you said, we are finally saved in the last day of judgment, followed by these five phrases, Faith at the last judgment is confirmed by sanctifying fruit that it has borne so that we are saved through sanctification and faith. As Paul explicitly says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. In the truth. So, faith alone doesn't mean the same thing when applied to justification, sanctification, and final salvation. Therefore, let us be extraordinarily careful and precise. The old Puritans used to say, We are precise because we serve a precise. With our language, when we talk about the most precious thing in the world, let us think what we are saying at every point. And since we believe in Scripture alone as the only final and decisive authority, our aim is to be biblical, not first reformed. Reformed if it proves to be biblical. So my point so far is that the five solas provide wonderful clarity about the crux of the Reformation and about the essence and heart of the gospel if the clause that the five prepositional phrases modify is justification is before, justification before God is. 
by grace alone, with no merited favor, whatever, on the basis of Christ alone, with no other sacrifice and no other righteousness as the foundation, through the means of faith alone, not including any human works whatsoever, to the end that all things lead ultimately to the glory of God alone as taught with final and decisive authority in the scripture alone. Those five modifiers of justification define the hinge issue of the Reformation, the dispute with the Roman Catholic Church, and the heart of the Christian gospel. And my assignment is to focus on soli deo gloria, but there's one more massive reality that if we don't clarify it, nothing makes sense. Why? Is there a need for God to break into the universe and justify the ungodly by grace? What's the problem? No comment been made about the problem yet. Everything's just hanging in the air. What, what's this about? What's wrong? And the biblical answer is every human being, every human being is dead, spiritually dead, apart from grace. And every human being is under the wrath of God. Apart from grace, we are spiritually dead, legally guilty before God. If anybody is going to escape hell and have everlasting pleasure at God's right hand, God himself will have to raise the dead and find a way for the wrath that is just and holy against my sin to be absorbed so that he can be 100% for me and not against me. So God, in his great mercy, sent Christ to bear our punishment and to become our righteousness. Christ alone is the all wrath removing sacrifice. And Christ alone is our all justifying righteousness. But since we're all dead and can't believe any of that, don't want to believe any of that, are strongly resistant to all of that supremacy of God in salvation, since we're all dead, grace alone, with no contribution from any corpse at all, must raise us from the dead. Ephesians 2.5 even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul breaks into the sentence to make clear what sovereign grace is. It's dead raising power and mercy. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The Protestant Reformation was a controversy with 
the Roman Catholic Church over how helpless we are. to raise ourselves from the dead and to be justified. And if you want to see the biggest dispute, it's between Erasmus and Luther, where the two books make it crystal clear. And Luther thought this was the bottom issue and the most important book he ever wrote on the bondage of the will, which could be paraphrased, the deadness of the human soul. That was the bottom issue. Are we really as helpless as the Bible says? Everything else follows if you believe we are. Only grace could raise us from the dead. Only Christ could become our punishment and our perfection. Those two miracles, life from the dead, wrath removed, can only be received as a gift. Unmerited unearned so that the entire transaction would lead ultimately to the glory of God, not me or merit or Mary or the mass or the saints. So let's turn our focus on the glory of God for the remainder of our time and ask four questions. Number one, what is the glory of God? Number two, why is it the goal of everything? Number three, how is God glorified most fully by his justified people? Number four, if God alone is glor gets the glory, what about our glorification? Number one, what is the glory of God? <laughs> what a presumptuous thing I'm about to do. You should try to do it. Isaiah 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. And you would expect him to say holiness. He says glory. From which I infer that when the holiness of God radiates out and fills the earth for people to see it's called glory. The basic meaning of holy is separated from all that is common. So when you carry that definition all the way up to the infinite creator God, the effect it has is to make him an infinite one of a kind. Like the rarest and most precious of diamonds in the world. Only there are no other diamond gods to compete. God's uniqueness as the only God, his godness, make him infinitely valuable, that is, holy. From cover to cover, the great dominating reality in the Bible is that this infinitely pure, infinitely beautiful, infinitely valuable divine uniqueness, this godness shines into creation, shines through history, shines through redemption as the glory of God. Cover to cover, almost every page.
So my definition, the glory of God is the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. And the reason I say manifold perfections is because when you read the Bible, you find phrases like the glory of his might or the glory of his grace. But you mainly see the glory of God. So I put that together and I say that the glory of God is the radiance of the intrinsic worth and greatness and beauty of his manifold perfections. Every attribute of God is glorious. Every attribute is a facet in the diamond of glory. You take any one of them away, he would be less glorious. Indeed, he would not be God. So when I speak of the glory of God, I'm not thinking of, of God, meaning like house of God, city of God. Namely, he has it. He possesses it. It is different from him and he owns it. He made it. I'm not thinking that way and you shouldn't either. When we say glory of God, we mean the worth and beauty and greatness of God are radiance of himself. The godness of God manifests to be spiritually seen and savored and shown by his redeemed people. This is probably my favorite, favorite quote from Jonathan Edwards. I'll do it twice. That is, I'll give you another quote later. All that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The refulgence, I said radiance, the refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to the original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God and God is the beginning, middle and end in this affair. I love Jonathan Edwards because I want to talk like that, feel like that, see like that. But now we've crossed over to question number two. Why is the glory of God the goal of everything? The answer is that God wanted it that way. This was his plan from eternity, that everything would be to the glory of God. It was his purpose, his design in creation, in history, in redemption. God created, God sustains, God governs, God saves in such a way as to reveal his glory. That's his goal. It all begins with the purpose in creation. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's what they're for. That's what the galaxies are for. Who, who set that up? 
that way for that purpose. God did. Isaiah 43, 6, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Then you move from creation to, to everything in providence. Ephesians 1, 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who first hoped in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Romans eleven thirty six. from him, through him, to him are all things, all things, to him be glory. And then the central story of the all things is redemption. And Paul makes clear that the point of it all is in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, Romans 9.23. Romans 15.9, Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. Romans 15.7, Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And lest it be not obvious, Isaiah quotes God twice to make sure we know he means God alone gets the glory. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 2, 11, the haughty looks of man will be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Soli Deo Gloria. So the universe and everything in it is mainly about the glory of God. This is the great reason for all existence, including yours. You're not going to hear this on the nightly news. It's the most important fact in the world. You're not going to read it in any science textbook in the university about the universe. Because the world is blind and they have chosen to be blind by preferring themselves at the center of all things rather than God. Don't determine truth by counting noses. If someone asks you, why then is there such a meaningless vastness of uninhabited galaxies and only this one little tiny dot of humans in the image of God? You should answer, the universe is not intended to portray the importance of man. 
The universe is intended to give man an inkling of the majesty of God, and it's an understatement. That's what you say. This world is so blind, so utterly dead and blind to what is so manifestly obvious. The heavens are telling the glory of God. So is your conscience. So is the marvel of humanity. Everything is screaming, I exist and I'm supremely glorious. Bow, worship, and joy. We don't want it and therefore we can't see it. Third question, how is God glorified most fully by his justified people? We're Christian hedonists, we know the answer to this question. We believe the answer is this, God is most glorified in his justified people when his justified people are most satisfied in him. And I believe that the pastors and theologians who wrote the greatest summary of the Reformation faith, namely the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism, discerned, without calling it that, Christian hedonism. When they said man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They didn't have to add and enjoy him. That's pretty subjective. Happiness oriented at the front of the greatest catechism in the universe. They didn't have to do that. Not only did they not just say that God may be glorified, they said these two are not two but one because they didn't use the plural ends. They used the singular end. The chief end of man. End of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because they discerned what Paul taught in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Namely, that Christ would be most magnified in his body as he died if he were most satisfied in Christ while dying. Christ's glory, his supreme beauty, worth, Greatness will be most plain when Paul says to die is gain. That's what Paul is saying. Christ and his magnificent, all-satisfying value and might and beauty and greatness will be seen most plainly. And in the moment the sword is coming down on my neck, I say, 
king. Oh, God help us be there. When God planned, see if you think this is right, when God planned in eternity to justify the ungodly the way he did, He didn't do it so that the justified would find his glory boring. God did not save sinners at the cost of his son's life, displaying the magnificence of his grace and his son, that we might look upon the glory of redemption and creation and say, I think I'll watch some television. This is not because our happiness is the supreme value of the universe. It's not. It's because the ultimate value in the universe, namely the all-glorious God, is shown to be the supreme treasure when he becomes the supreme pleasure of his justified people. To cite Edwards one last time, this is my second favorite quote. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So obvious, so plain, so true, so needed, such good news. When God justifies sinners by grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, he is opening to us the way of life. And what does Psalm 16 say is the goal of the way of life? You show me the path, the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. One last question. If God alone gets the glory, what about our glorification? The biblical answer is, when we say soli deo gloria, to God alone glory, we should mean whatever glory is shared with man is a glory that calls attention ultimately to the source and end of all things, the glory of God alone. The Bible is stunningly clear that the children of God will be glorified with the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the next into the same image. First John 3.2, beloved 
we are God's children now, which does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Romans 8.30, therefore those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. It's as good as done. <laughs> what a salvation. Why is God so intent on making us glorious with his own glory? The reason is not hard to see. Jesus said that his aim, speaking, acting, his aim was that his joy might be in us. His divine joy might be in us and our joy might be full. Well, you can't put the jet engine of a 747 in a smart car. You can't put the volcano of God's joy in the teacup of my unglorified soul. You can't put all glorious joy in unglorious people. We will be glorified because it's the only way we can be fully satisfied in God with the very joy of God so that God himself will be most glorified in us. So I hope that the Holy Spirit is at work inclining your heart to want him, to trust him, to come to Christ, draw near to Christ, embrace Christ, Savior, Lord, supreme treasure of your life. Because you then would be justified by grace alone with no merited favor whatever on the basis of Christ alone. Namely, Christ as the only sacrifice and the only righteousness as the foundation. Through the means of faith alone, not including any human works whatsoever. To the end, that you might enjoy God alone as the supreme pleasure of your life and the supreme treasure of your existence so that you thus might show him to be all glorious alone. Let's pray. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness worked out in all of creation, all of history, and especially in all of redemption in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.